Our text this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13. And you'll find this passage on page 987 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Christine. Thanks, everybody. You may be seated. We're continuing in our study of First Thessalonians. Allow me uh, to pray for us before we look at today's passage. Father in heaven, you give us your word. It is true. I pray that it would cut us all to the quick this day. We would hear it. We would know who it comes from. We would affirm the source. We'd affirm its truth. And Lord, that we would let it speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I was thinking this week of the question, what is the purpose of life? And I, I was born in the early 80s, and I, I don't know if many of you who were born, if you remember, I couldn't remember any specifics, but I remember as a kid, there was this like motif amongst commercials and cartoons of people climbing the mountain and there would be like the floating guru at the top and they would say, what's the purpose of life? And there'd be some joke, you know, that was made. Um, and while I was thinking about that, I also was thinking about the book Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, all right? Um, in that book, the author, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, humorous book. He uses humor um, to get his point across. Well, he, uh, um, he, uh, they build this robot that knows everything and they ask it the question, what's the purpose of life? And out pops the answer and the answer is 42 and nobody knows what that means. And so they, they spend the rest of their life figuring out what 42 means. Um, I think those are silly answers. I think the world, if you had to boil it down, the world has given us an answer. What they think the purpose of life is and what is it? Happiness. If it makes you happy, do it. If it doesn't, don't do it. Seems simple, seems memorable. I think we all know that there's some problems with that. But listen, why do we even ask the question? Why is everyone asking the question at some point in their lives? What's the meaning of life? We ask it because we are living. We're living. We strive through life. We hurt. We make plans. They fail. We make plans. They succeed. We try to find a formula for how that all works so we can nail it down. It never seems to follow through once we think we have it. And so we continue to ask the question, what's the purpose of life? Christianity, every religion, in fact, has an answer to that question. And I think sometimes Christianity's answer to the question seems subtle. And, and the, the answer to why that might be, I think that 
Oftentimes, the emphasis in Christianity is on conversion and where we're all going. So there's nothing wrong with that. But when we're talking to someone about Jesus, what do we say? What do we emphasize? If you died tonight, where would you go? Heaven or hell? That's a very important question. It's a very important question. The problem, sometimes we often overemphasize that and we miss the whole of the in-between. And so it becomes more about the conversion moment and the end of it all, kind of like fire insurance by saying a certain prayer rather than it being about the whole of life. And so let's just affirm something. The end is important. First Thessalonians is written by Paul to the Thessalonican people to say the end is important. Why is the end important? Because in the end, God receives his ultimate glorification. It says in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord in the end. In the end, our sin comes to an end forever. In the end, Satan is defeated forever. In the end, we're with him in friendship for eternity. Those are all very important things. So the end matters. The end matters. Paul, in this particular portion of Scripture, is painting a picture of the in-between. He's saying, he's affirming, it matters. The end matters, but so does life. Life matters. Life's important. And so what he wants to share with us through the Thessalonican church is that God uses the duration of our lives to prepare us for the second coming of Jesus Christ. God uses the duration of our lives to prepare us for the second coming of Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul is speaking still with the Thessalonians. He hasn't changed uh, that. Um, he is going to share with them a couple prayers, a personal prayer and a prayer that he's praying for them. Let's first start with the prayer that he's praying for them. And so we're going to start, we're going to jump around just a little bit, but I'll, I'll promise to do my best to let you know where we're at. So we're going to look at the beginnings of verse 12 and verse 13 here to start. Um, Paul, again, is praying. He is letting the Thessalonians know what he has been praying for them. And the first thing he does is he prays for an increase of something. He's praying for an increase in their life, an increase of love and an increase of holiness. Now, what's interesting about this is that they already have those things in some quantity. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news. So again, remember, they were torn away quickly from the Thessalonians. They, they were away. They didn't get to finish their training, finish their discipleship. And so they were trying hard to get back. Last week, we saw that Satan had hindered them. And so finally, they send Timothy by himself to go and check on the Thessalonians, and he brings back good news of what? Your faith and love. They have faith and love. They are maturing. And reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. They have faith. They have love. They have, they're maturing. They're not depraved. And so it's interesting that when he shares in his prayer, he says, that they may, the Lord will make them increase and abound in love for one another and for, one, and for all, as we do for you. He wants them to have more love than they already have. 
more love than they already have. This word increase means more. This word abound means more than they know what to do with. And so what Paul is praying for the Thessalonians is, listen, you are already loving. My prayer for you is that you would just increase and increase and increase and increase in more and more love. More love, always more. He speaks about two different groups, and I think we can have an immediate application to us here. First, he talks about one another. So insiders, let's just ask some questions of ourselves. Certainly, I would say this, and I might be biased, but uh, you guys were here before I was. You all are a caring church. You care for each other. You care for each other. You are good at that. You're good at knowing one another's needs and meeting them. So in some sense, if, if Paul, if we're the Thessalonians, he would send Timothy, and Timothy would come back and say, these people know how to care for each other. They know how to do it. The question then Paul would say is, well, how can we care for one another better? How can we do it better? How can we help one another to know Christ more? Questions like this, am I proud of my dealings with my brothers and my sisters? How can we build trust? Am I open to new, deep relationships? How can we see deeper fellowship, richer discipleship? How can I increase with my brothers and sisters and my mercy and my grace and my forgiveness? Those are some questions we ask that Paul would have us ask. Even though we're loving, even though we're caring, he wants us to increase more and more. And then he also talks about outsiders. I would say this as well. You all are a welcoming church. You are. You are. The question then is, How can we be more welcoming? We are certainly welcoming in this building. Are we welcoming outside of it in our lives? What does our community need that we have that we can give? How can we build meaningful friendships with non-Christians? Who are the least of these in Northeast Columbia and how do we meet them? How can we stay faithful to Scripture while drawing nearer to the world by meeting their true needs? Now, These questions that I'm asking are not questions that we answer and move on. These are questions we have to continually answer for the rest of our lives. More, more, more love is what Paul is praying for. Paul's praying that the Thessalonians and we become this ever-increasing spring of Christian love, never being satisfied with where we're at. He wants us to increase in love in the first petition. The second petition, he wants to do something else. He wants uh, in our love, as we increase in love, that God may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. What do these words mean? Blameless means free of guilt. Free of guilt. So in other words, really, truly shaking off sinful behaviors. Holiness, the quality of being dedicated to God, Actual separation from sinful practices. It's not something that happens and we move on. The word established, which we'll talk more about in detail in a moment, is in the active voice. It's ongoing now. And so it's, sorry to say, just like we're never loving enough, we are never holy enough. (laughs) Okay? Welcome to church this morning, okay? We're never holy enough. But here's the deal. The Christian life, the Christian life, the one that Paul is describing in Thessalonians is not one of strength, overcoming strength. I've got this. 
That's what Brody does when he's strong. He says, rah, okay? Um, that's not the Christian life. One of success and overcoming, and I've got this, and look at me. The Christian life, as we know throughout all of Scripture, is one of dependent weakness. Dependent weakness. So, let's ask some questions. Does God call his people to ongoing obedience? Yes. Make no mistake about that. When God gives a command, it's a command. We're called to actively separate ourselves from sinful activities every day of our life. But never, ever is a command from God about holiness, about me and my righteousness. It's not about that. It's not about that. It's always about him and his righteousness. Life is not a test of strength, proving ourselves before we get to heaven. Again and again in the scripture, what does God show us? He shows us, here's how I want you to live. He shows us that all of his people from the beginning of time have failed, and then he shows us that he is patient and gracious and loving towards his weak children. That's the story of the Bible, of God and his people. So how do we reconcile these two things? He's praying for increased love. He's praying for increased holiness, but he's also gracious. How do we make sense of all this? There's this one underlying truth throughout this whole passage that puts us in a context that helps us understand that it's not about strength, it's about weakness. And that is that God is at the helm. He's in control of our entire lives. It's scattered throughout this passage. First, look at verses 10 and 11. Again, in his personal prayer, we, remember last, last week we talked about how we have this adversary. His name is Satan. His, his name is adversary. That's what Satan means. And what does he do? He physically wants to stop the church from growing. He wants to hinder the church from moving forth, the gospel going out. He wants to derail us in our Christian walk and following Christ. And so Paul, in response to his being hindered by Satan, what does he do? He prays to God. Earnest prayer, it says in verse 10. That means far beyond regular amounts. And what is he praying? In verse 11, now may our God and Father himself, our Lord, direct our way to you. That word direct means to clear the path. In other words, Satan, who has uprooted the path and blocked his way, he's saying, only God can clear it. And so I pray to God to do so. Satan is the obstructor. Only God can overcome those obstructions. And so what is Paul this, communicating? He's saying, I am always and forever for everything dependent upon God. I'm dependent upon God. He relates the same teaching to their sanctification in the future and in the past and the present. First, we'll go to verses 12 and 13, the future. Yes, he wants them to increase and abound in love, but look who's responsible for that. And may the Lord make you increase. May the Lord make you increase. Increase means to grow. And the verbs here all have to do with God being in control of our increase of love. God increases our love. God does it. In the same way, our blameless in holiness, God, so that he may establish your hearts. Who firms our hearts? This word establish means to firm up in determination. 
Who gives us motivation to obey? Who enables us to obey? God himself. Finally, you get verse 9. The fact that Paul is thanking God for their past and present maturity is, for the Greek culture, very informative. So in Greek culture, there is a strong sense of returning the favor. So if I were to give uh, someone a gift, uh, they would make sure that they gave something in return, either that kind word of thanks or a gift in return. And so as Paul is praising the Thessalonians' maturity and his thankfulness is directed towards God, he's communicating to them, this has really nothing to do with you, has everything to do with God. God's the giver of this wonderful gift that brings me such joy and happiness. So their progress and their maturity was not something they could pat themselves on the back for. God was doing it already. He would continue to do it. And so Paul prays to God for that very thing. I hope you're following, but to make it clear, here's what Paul is saying in these verses as he recounts his prayers. He is saying to us, he's saying to the Thessalonians, that from beginning to end, God guides our salvation. God guides our maturity. His hand is in it. He does it for us. This is because this is who God is. God can't stop being all-powerful. God can't stop being all-knowing. God can't stop being all-loving. It's God's character. It's his very being to be sovereign. It's, it's, God can't help it but be a predestiner to hold all creation in his hands. It's God's nature to what? Prepare us for eternity. That's where this ends in verse 13. What, what is he doing? He's increasing their love. He's establishing their hearts so that they may be found holy at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. So Satan, in his best attempts as the sore loser, tries to hinder us in our walk. He tries to hinder the church. But what? God reigns in all those areas. God reigns in the expansion of the church. God reigns in our maturity. God reigns in our sanctification. He holds all the control, the power. And so this underlying truth that helps us understand our increase in love and our increase in holiness is that God is in control of every aspect of everything, of everything. And so that gives us the answer to the following question. How does God use his control to prepare us for eternity? To prepare us for eternity. You see, as we follow God, as we follow Christ, as we live this life between conversion and our death, as we live this life, we never fully arrive. Because God is always working. God's always working. The question we have to ask is, do we accept this? Do we accept this? Do we accept that God is using every aspect of our lives to prepare us to be face-to-face with him? That's a heavy thought. Do we believe truly that the ups and downs are meant to show us our weakness, to show us where we need him more? They're not tests of strength. Do we accept that God has given us this walk of the Christian life to remind us of our sin 
and to root it out. Do we believe that's true? That God's given us this walk to increase our humility and our dependence upon Jesus. Listen, some of us have to really wrestle with this idea, especially if we've uh, taken on this idea that we're supposed to live this victorious Christian life, one of strength where we have almost no sin and our reputation is great. God's sanctification of his people is not a doctrine of strength, it's a doctrine of weakness. Our weakness. We're not to be living life as if we're proving our worth before heaven. Life, God uses it as a way to change us, to change us. Not in our independence, but in our utter dependence upon him. John Newton says it this way. Experience is the Lord's school. And they who are taught by him usually learn that they have no wisdom by the mistakes they make and they have no strength by the slips and falls they meet with. That's the Christian life. God uses this life to show us that we're sinners and not just in this theological lofty way. Every single one of us in here would be like, well, yeah, he wants to show us we're sinners in the trenches of life that we sin in every moment. Even the good things we do are tainted by the sinfulness of our hearts. That's not doom and gloom. He gives us the answer because in our un, as we see that we're unwise weaklings, what do we see? That Jesus meets every one of those needs with his strength. Barbara Duguid in her book, Extravagant Grace, puts it this way. The way of the transgressor is hard and humbling indeed, yet full of remarkable sweetness and joy for those whom God calls to repentance. What's the purpose of life? Life is the process through which we are made and established. We're prepared. And it's a life specifically surrounded by the truth of the gospel. What's the truth of the gospel? That God is at the helm of not just our maturing, but every part of our lives. That Jesus, God in the flesh, has a deep love for sinners. He proves it by the price he paid on the cross for their souls. And that as he has promised, he walks with us through the ups and downs of life with eternal purpose. What's the purpose of life? Is it to love more? Sure. Yes. Is it to obey God more? Yes. Is it to need Jesus more? You betcha. (laughs) Is it to grasp more firmly the idea that we are more sinful than we know, but on the reverse of that, we're more loved than we could ever imagine? Yes, that's the purpose of life. And God uses this truth of our sin and his love to continually form us to his will. Constant changing. Why? To prepare us for eternity. One thing I love about the Lord's Supper, and I say this all the time, it's multifaceted. So in some sense, while we are celebrating rehearsing the celebration of the, of the end of all things when we will feast with Jesus Christ, it's also used simultaneously as a, as a preparation tool for us. It's a regular stop for us to, to confess our sin. It's a regular stop for us to accept God's forgiveness. It's a regular stop to remind us of our need. We need the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ every day. We need it. 
We need the love of God. We need it. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? We need one another. We need to walk together through this life. We need our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. And so we have this sacrament, one sacrament that gives us a reminder of all of those needs. You have the bread and the cup. It reminds us of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. You have the, the, uh, the invitation to come that, that his resurrection triumphs over anything we can do. We're not blocked. We're accepted. We're invited. I love that here at this church, we walk side by side to the front. That's a reminder of what life is like walking together toward Christ. And all of this is not something that we made up in the ARP. <laughs> We're not that smart, okay? Jesus gave us this thing for this purpose. And so this morning, if you know that you're a sinner, yes, we don't know how, how dark and deep that gets yet. We're going to learn as life goes on. But if you believe that it's true and you believe that Jesus is your only hope in that sin, we don't know how great and glorious that is either. We're learning. But if you know those things to be true, you've been baptized, you've made that profession, you're welcome to the table of Jesus Christ. He says, come and eat. You're my friend, you're my brother, you're my sister. This morning, if you don't believe those things, if you think First of all, that, that there is something better than Jesus out there, and you found it, I would challenge you on that, but also the Bible says don't come. If Jesus is not the thing that can deliver beyond our imagination in these areas, the Bible says do not participate. It doesn't make any sense. So this morning, if, if that is you, we ask you kindly not to eat and not to drink, but to talk to an elder, talk to me, sometime, make an appointment. We'd love to talk further about why you think you found something better. We'd like to get to know you better. So let's just take a moment. Let's pray quietly in our hearts. Let's let the celebration of what the Lord's Supper means well up in our hearts to prepare us to receive the bread and the cup. I'll gather us together in a prayer of blessing in just a moment. Father in heaven, we ask in this moment to bless this supper. We believe that while nothing magical happens, this bread doesn't change from being bread, the juice and the wine doesn't change from being that, we do believe that your spirit is here and that by the power of your spirit, Jesus Christ is present in our midst, and that this meal, the supper, means something not just to our minds, but to our very souls. You've given it to us to sustain us on this long, arduous walk called life. At times it's confusing what you're doing, but we can rest assured that you are preparing us for something that will last for eternity, that will never let us down being with our creator face to face, living for our created purpose, worshiping you. Thank you for not leaving us 
unwise weaklings to our own devices. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You sent us Jesus Christ. You have a plan of eternity. You are sovereignly in control of all things. Praise your name for those things. We are helpless without them. And so, Father, use this meal to bolster us in our walk. Give us a passion for our brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. May we love them more. Give us a passion for all, everyone outside this church. May we love them more. And Father, give us the motivation, the repentance needed to walk more blameless and holy after Jesus Christ. Thank you for your spirit and empowering us in those activities. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our crucified and risen Lord. Amen.